question was, what is the spin-orbit <coughs> interaction? Actual student answer, the electron spin gives it a magnetic dipole moment, and in the electron's frame, the proton is orbiting around it, therefore creating a magnetic field. Therefore, the magnetic field exerts a torque on the electron's dipole moment, making it align with the magnetic field. Uh, student questions. I'm confused as to how the fine structure constant alpha got into equation 667, which is the fine structure formula. Besides that, he mentions that it's a factor of alpha squared less than the Bohr energy. So the spin orbit term has a factor of alpha sitting out in front of it. And then there's one over r cubed in the spin orbit term. So when you take one over r cubed expectation value, you get alpha cubed. So the expectation value of the spin orbit term is alpha to the fourth. So that's two orders higher than the lowest order energy we found, or energy. It is confusing why electrons can only be in specific energy levels and why those are quantized. This is very different than the distance between planets orbiting a star, because those distances can vary. So that's quantum mechanics in your face. That's why it's interesting. So electrons don't follow orbits. They have wave functions. Wave functions have boundary conditions that impose on them discrete energy levels if they're in bound states. So, yes, it's very different. Uh, what confuses me is that the electrons should be accelerating around the nucleus, and so they should be radiating and releasing energy and finally collapse. But this does not happen since they are in standing wave. Quantum mechanics in your face. Classically, they would radiate almost instantaneously and there would be no atoms. Fortunately, there's quantum mechanics, so we can have atoms in people. Uh, we will see later on that electrons in excited states can go down to lower states by emitting photons. We'll actually calculate how often that happens. Wait, so what does a wave quantum mechanical wave function need to be doing to radiate energy? Um, well, it needs to make a transition to another state with a lower energy, which means it wasn't really a stationary state but it was a stationary state of some lowest order Hamiltonian where he neglected the bit where it gets allowed to radiate. Perturbation theory in your face. But since, well, and for the ground state, there's no lower state for it to go to, so it can't radiate. Are there any more corrections to be made to the energy level formula or the grand result in equation 67? Is it the final step in approving the accuracy of the energy level calculations? There's more. There's always more. So he mentions the Lamb shift. That's order alpha to the fifth. But you have to understand quantum field theory to do that calculation. So unfortunately, we can't do it. And beyond that, there's an infinite series of terms, which we also don't have time to do. Just It's just a matter of how much effort you're willing to put in, there's always more corrections, and how accurate you need the answer. Uh, in the beginning of the section, Griffiths finds a relativistic correction to the kinetic energy operator, T, by taking the classical result and expanding it in power series, placing P with the P operator. I heard that in quantum field theory, there are a great deal of divergent series that are simply ignored. Well, it's not quite true. They're not ignored. It's just people didn't understand them, it took a long time to understand looked like each term was infinity, 
but then if you do it more carefully, each term is not infinity. Uh, do they come from expansions like these that fail to operate in certain terms in a normalizable way? Um, those things that seem to be divergent come from summing over all possible intermediate states where you sum down to infinite, you sum up to infinite energies, which means zero dis distance, zero wavelength. But uh, since no one's ever done an experiment down to zero wavelength or infinite energy, probably not a good idea. Uh, why is a relativistic correction needed when the particles are not moving near the speed of light? So if you were happy with the formula that's accurate to one part in a thousand, then you don't need that correction. If you want to measure it to one part in 10 to the 4, then you do need that correction. So it's just a question of how precise you want to be. How does the Thomas procession work? Griffiths just waves his hands and gets out a different answer. Can we understand this in a way other than just accepting what he says? You can uh, check out a book on relativity and uh, find the section on Thomas procession. Or you guys didn't do that in your relativity class? Or you can go to grad school, take it again. Or read a book or come to office hours. Then I'll have to read the book. Um, I thought it was interesting when Griffiths mentioned that regarding the spin-orbit interaction, the modified gyromagnetic ratio for the electron and the Thomas procession exactly cancels each other out. Griffiths says this is coincidental, but it seems strange that two physical quantities exactly cancel each other out just by pure coincidence. So is this really a coincidence, or is there some other reason for the cancellation? So as far as we know, it's a coincidence. But if there was some deep reason why they had to cancel, um, well, maybe there is, but we don't know it. So since we don't know, we'll call it a coincidence. But if you guys find the deep reason, please let me know. I'll publish it for you. Um, <coughs> I don't follow how we can go from the spin-orbit coupling to a splitting of the levels. So this is the point of perturbation theory. We find some new correction to the Hamiltonian that we ignored or didn't understand before. If we include it in the Hamiltonian, then the energy levels we found before have to be corrected by this new term. So that leads, generally leads to a splitting of the levels. I'm not sure what Griffiths means when he says NL and M are the good quantum numbers on page 270. He means that those are the states that label good states that were talked about at length in the previous section. And therefore, we don't have to worry about non-degenerate perturbation theory because we've already found the good states. Finding the adjusted expectation values how we just linearly add the relativistic and spin-orbit energy adjustment seems a little unclear. So this is a case where there's two perturbations of roughly the same size. If you work to first order in perturbation theory, you can add them independently. If you work to second order, then <coughs> they wouldn't add independently, and you have to do second order perturbation theory. OK, any other questions? So I propose that we do a bunch of examples. So we're going to do problem 6.7, a bead on a wire. Crap. Turn on my pen.
will look prettier online. There will only be one though. Okay, so we have a wire that goes from minus L over 2 to plus L over 2. And we'll assume that L is big compared to the scales we're interested in, so we won't worry about the curvature. And so that means it's a particle in a box. So the Hamiltonian is p squared over 2m. It's one-dimensional box. And all we have to do is take periodic boundary conditions instead of our usual box boundary conditions. So we know the solutions of this equation are exponentials with complex arguments. And you can trust me that if you normalize them, you get a 1 over root L. So just like particle in the box, we get uh, energy levels that go like n squared over L squared. The only difference is because get to choose periodic boundary conditions, now we can choose plus or minus integers. Which makes sense because if it's on a wire instead of in a, bo in a box, there's not going to be an eigenstate that's always going one direction. It's going to bounce back and forth. That's why the expectation value of p was zero. But if we're on the wire, we can just keep going around and around and around. So there's a state where it's going clockwise, and there's a state where it's going counterclockwise. So there's a twofold degeneracy. Those guys have the same energy, but different momenta. So now that we've solved the lowest order Hamiltonian, we're going to add a perturbation. So imagine there's this thing, it wires a horizontal loop, and we make, make a little bend in it, and it's sitting near the surface of the Earth, so there's some gravitational potential. So there's a little correction to the energy. If we're near x equals zero, there's a little Gaussian bend in the wire, so we can lower our energy if we sit right near x equals zero where the bend is. And we'll assume the size of the bend is much smaller than the length of our wire. So, we just need to work out the matrix elements of the perturbation Hamiltonian. So let's do the diagonal ones first. So that's just an overlap integral with the wave functions and our perturbation Hamiltonian in the middle. So we integrate from minus L over 2 to plus L over 2. Our perturbation was this Gaussian. And we need psi dagger n, psi n. But since it's just this phase, this product is just 1 over L. And uh, if L is much bigger than A, then it's almost as good to integrate out from minus infinity to infinity because the Gaussian is small out there. So I won't change the answer, but that means we can look up the answer in a book instead of doing it numerically or something crazy.
so this is approximately equal to. Must have been a DX up there. So when you look up the answer, that integral is a root pi. And uh, we would get the same answer if we looked at minus n minus n. Right? The psi dagger psi would still be 1 over L. So the only thing left to do is n minus n. So we have the same Gaussian perturbation. But now, if one of them is minus n, then the phases don't cancel, they add. So we'll get, since I put the n on the left, that means it goes with the side dagger. So it gets the minus sign, and then the other one has minus n. So we'll get minus 4 pi i and x over l. And uh, that's another nasty integral, but you can do it by some saddle point method. Or look it up. Extend the range from minus infinity to infinity. And you'll get a similar looking answer, but with a Gaussian. Oops, A is on top. Where it goes like e to the minus a over l squared in the exponent. So now we have the matrix elements of the perturbation. We can write down the energy eigenvalues. So the formula we found last time would tell us instead of being labeled by a and b, they're labeled by n and minus n. Since w minus n minus n is equal to wnn, this term cancels. And so we just get WNN plus or minus the absolute value of WN minus N. Oh, minus sign there. So there's a common factor of minus V naught over L A root pi. Gaussian correction, plus or minus ma over l squared. It's minus plus because I factored out a minus sign. So, now we found the energy, the corrections to the energy at first order. Is there anything else we need to do? 
Well, if we cared, hmm? Yeah, we'd like to know what, what are the good states that correspond to these energy levels. I'd like to know. So, we found this equation that relates the coefficients alpha and beta. first order correction in the energy. So when we solve for one of those coefficients beta, we get uh, an expression in terms of diagonal matrix element and energy correction over the off-diagonal element. And in this case it was easy because this correction to the energy was WNN plus or minus this guy. So we get plus or minus the off-diagonal guy over itself with its absolute value on top. So that just has to be... Because this guy was negative, it's minus plus. So psi plus, the one that goes with E plus, should be alpha psi n minus alpha psi minus n. And since these coefficients are equal and we already normalized these guys, we know that the magnitude of alpha is just 1 over root 2. And our wave functions were these exponentials. with the opposite phase, because one's minus n. And that looks very familiar. It's a sine function. Yep? Where did the uh, second one over root 2 come from? Uh, so this is a, an L. Oh, I'm sorry. And that's so the alphas have to be 1 over root 2 because we already normalized these guys. And these guys were normalized by 1 over root L. If we do the same thing for to find psi minus, it's the same thing with a plus sign in between. And so if I put a plus here, I'll get a cosine. Now, if we really wanted to check that we understand what we're doing, do you guys really want to check? We could calculate the energy levels directly. <coughs> now that we know what the good states are, we can use non-degenerate perturbation theory and just take the expectation value in the good states.
for the E minus. The same integral with the Gaussian and a cosine instead of the sine. trigonometry. Does anyone remember these double angle formulas? You guys are good. I always have to look them up. Maybe I'm getting old. But I never actually memorized them. So it saves time forgetting. So with those double angle formulas, we can write uh, both of them together. Make our usual approximation that L is much bigger than A. You just have to look up this integral, and then I'll tell you that you get this. So it, the whole story hangs together. By explicitly diagonalizing the perturbation Hamiltonian, we found the first order corrections for the degenerate problem. By finding the good states, we can use non-degenerate perturbation theory and just take expectation values in the good states. And we said there was a shortcut, too. So I could have uh, saved a lot of time if I used the shortcut. Everyone remember what the shortcut was? Yeah, if we found some uh, Hermitian operator that commutes with both of the Hamiltonians, then we could directly find what the good states were. So in this case, the Hermitian operator is parity. So parity acts on a function f of x and gives us f of minus x. And parity operator acting on our perturbation Hamiltonian <coughs> gives us h of minus x, but it was a Gaussian around zero, so it's the same as that. And our zeroth order Hamiltonian was the second derivative, so that will also work. And uh, parity operator acting on sine gives us sine of minus x, which is minus sine x, on cosine x. Gives this back just cosine x. So sine and cosines are the eigenfunctions of parity, yes? Oh, what is parity? Um, parity takes x to minus x. In well, in three dimensions, it takes x to minus x, y to minus y, z to minus z. 
So it's just a mirror operation. So these sine and cosine, uh, if we flip x to minus x, which is flipping around x equals 0, these are the eigenfunctions. They have eigenvalues plus or minus 1. So these are the good states of parity. And magically, those are the states that we found by explicitly diagonalizing. So we could have just, instead of doing all that diagonalization, could have just said, obviously, it's a Gaussian perturbation. It doesn't matter if x is plus or minus. So we should use the good states, sine and cosine. And then we just have to do this integral at the bottom instead of two pages of work. Any questions? So what happens if we have more than two degenerate states? Oops. So what we did before was we assumed there were only two degenerate states. We applied perturbation theory and we got two equations. If you wrote out those equations in matrix form, they would look like this. Everyone recognizes that equation. It's the equation for finding eigenvalues. So these first order corrections are the eigenvalues of this perturbation matrix. Remember, this is the perturbation Hamiltonian written in matrix form. So it is a linear algebra problem. And we showed that the good states are the eigenvectors. These good states are the guys that have these eigenvalues. So if we have an n-fold degeneracy, we'll write down our perturbation matrix. It will be an n by n matrix. We we'll just have to diagonalize the n by n matrix. When n gets to be infinity, it's a little hard, but probably won't do that on the midterm. Probably 3 by 3 is enough. Or you can do 10 by 10, as long as you can break it up into 3 by 3s and 2 by 2s. You guys can do 3 by 3s, right? So, So we construct a basis in our degenerate subspace. What does that mean? So we have some space of all the possible zeroth order eigenfunctions. There's only some subgroup of eigenfunctions that have the same energy levels at lowest order. So that's the degenerate subspace, degenerate in energy. And then we just want to find, in that subspace, can we diagonalize W? 
perturbation matrix. So we'll take as an example the lowest order Hamiltonian in a th threefold degenerate subspace has eigenvalues V0, V0, V0. And we'll take our perturbation to be some random looking mess. Well, not totally random, it has to be Hermitian. Yep. So with these um, perturbation matrices, you're only dealing with those states that are degenerate, right? Yeah. So then, like, for instance, if state one, three degeneracy, you don't really include state, I mean, like, I don't know, energy level one had three degeneracies, and that was like psi and one and two and three. Those would be the only ones, and then you'd ignore yeah. the rest. To, to work it to first order. <coughs> so to first order, we only need the expectation values. So once we find the good states, which are the eigenfunctions of that, then we only need those diagonal matrix elements. When we go to second order of energy, then there can be off-diagonal things that mix different energy levels. But to first order, you're never mixing different energy levels, right? That's how the non-degenerate worked. First order, you need to know just the this states with the same energy. Second order, you can mix between different energies. So I can diagonalize this matrix. And you can too. We'll call them 100, zero, 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 010, zero, and uh, that pretty much fixes the last guy. Their eigenvalues are B0. Um, we'll assume that this epsilon is much less than 1. So there, there was a guy in graduate school in the math department one time who thought that this was a, just a misprinted 3. So he's doing all these proofs at the limit where 3 goes to 0. That wouldn't happen in the physics department. So our perturbation Hamiltonian uh, we just need the, expecta the expectation value of the perturbation between these states, but I already gave it in matrix form. So all we have to do is diagonalize that guy. So is there a question? The what? The matrix? Or the focus? Bottom right. The matrix just changed. Okay, so remember the way you diagonalize this problem is you say that uh, this matrix acting on a vector equals lambda times a vector, subtract lambda times a vector from both sides, 
that matrix must have determinant zero. So you write down the matrix with the eigenvalues subtracted. We take its determinant and set it equal to zero. So we'll have one minus lambda times the determinant of this guy. And then we'll have minus times this guy, which makes plus one. And then we cross out the row and column. So it looks like minus one, minus one, zero, one minus lambda. So this is one minus lambda times two minus lambda, one minus lambda, minus, minus, minus one. then this guy is just this times that and zero times that. So that is uh, lambda minus one. So we can factor out a one minus lambda from everything. So here we have uh, two minus three lambda plus lambda squared minus one then minus one from that guy. And so that can't, minus one minus one cancels the two. So in the end, you can factor out a lambda and a lambda minus three. So now we know the eigenvalues. They're zero, one, and three. Is that a question? And uh, with a little effort, you could find that the eigenvectors look like this. So to find the eigenvectors, you go back to the eigenvalue equation. Now you know the eigenvalues, so you can find which vectors have those eigenvalues. So the energy correct the energy to first order is V naught for the guy that has eigenvalue zero. There's a one plus epsilon correction for this guy. And a one plus three epsilon correction for this guy. So now it's I mean, it's just linear algebra at this point, right? But, well, all of quantum mechanics is just linear algebra at some level, but now it's really, literally, just linear algebra. So let's try a, a physical system, at least. Do the 3D harmonic oscillator. We haven't done the 3D harmonic oscillator yet, have we? In the homework, you did? A little bit easy. So we have a kinetic term. We have a quadratic. 
quadratic potential. Now it's in three dimensions. But it's just the one-dimensional problem three times. So we know the answer is you can write the energy as raising and lowering operators. And now we need one for x, one for y, one for z. <coughs> and then the one-dimensional harmonic oscillator, there was a plus a half. So now we have three of them, so there's plus three halves. And in one dimension, we labeled things by some quantum number n. So now there's a total energy quantum number, but there's a separate quantum number for x, y, and z. Just like our three-dimensional box. So we can label states by n, x, n, y, and z. And we can label things by the total energy. So the ground state is 0, 0, 0. So it has an energy 3 halves h bar omega. Then there'll be a first excited state. But that could be 1, 0, 0, 0, 1, 0, or 0, 0, 1. So if I label the degeneracies, here there's only one ground state, but here there's three states with the first excited energy. Go to the second excited state. Then we could have one, one, zero, one, zero, one, zero, one, one, or two, zero, 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 two, zero, 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 two. Now there's six states. And if you do the general level, it'll be n plus one times n plus two over two. Okay, so now we just need a perturbation, because that was way too easy make life interesting, we'll add a perturbation B h bar omega and let's do this. Put a lowering operator in Y and a raising operator in X. So that would take, if I have a state that has some excitation in Y, it just moves the excitation over into the X direction. And that's not Hermitian by itself. So we better add a remission conjugate. And now it doesn't do anything to Z. So is that, uh, does that help us? Yeah, so this will conserve N sub Z. That means n sub z commutes with this perturbation Hamiltonian. So that will that will make our life simpler. 
So in the ground state, just get to use non-degenerate perturbation theory. What's the matrix element? This perturbation in the ground state. Zero. So in the ground state, we have a lowering operator. We're already in the low state. We get zero. Here it's an x. Here it's a y. Either way, we get zero. So that was too easy. Start a new page. We'll do the first excited state. So So if I look at a matrix element of the perturbation Hamiltonian, on one side I'll have, let's look at 1, 0, 0. On the other side, I can have nx and y and z. So an arbitrary state. So what will I get? So what I can do to this is I can lower x and raise y. So if nx and y and z are 0, 1, 0, then I get b h bar omega. Because I lowered x and raised y, and I get some square roots of 1. Otherwise, anything else, I have to get 0. And we just need to do the same calculation. We have three degenerate states. So, oops, Let's, we need to do it for a different state. For 0, 1, 0, I can lower y and raise x. Zero, zero, one, zero. So if I try to lower x or y, I get zero. So if I write my basis states down, make a matrix. We found zero there, bh bar omega there, zero, bh bar omega, zero, 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 zero. So this splits up into two blocks because this is the block with nz equal to zero. This is the block with this block has nz equal to 1. And there can't be any off-diagonal elements between those two blocks because our perturbation Hamiltonian conserves nz. So it's not really a 3 by 3 matrix, it's a 2 by 2 and a 1 by 1 and the 1 by 1 is pretty easy. So this is actually one that we know how to diagonalize because it looks just like a Pauli matrix.
So we know the answer. Let's check. Get lambda squared minus one. So lambda equals plus or minus one. If I plug back into the eigenvalue equation with some vector AB, that has times that vector. And I want to get back eigenvalue plus or minus 1. This tells me that uh, BA is plus or minus AB. So B equals plus or minus A. And this gives A is plus or minus B. And then if we want to normalize things, the eigenvectors are 1 over root 2, 1 over root 2, 1 over root 2, and minus 1 over root 2. This is when it's plus, this is when it's minus. So just like when we had poly matrices. So good states are this guy and one with the minus sign in between and this guy nobody messed with him And since we know the eigenvalues, the energy for this A good state is the lowest order, order energy plus BH bar omega. And the lowest order, order energy was 1 plus 3 halves H bar omega. So this is 5 halves h bar omega plus b h bar omega. And then eb will be 5 halves h bar omega minus b h bar omega. So if you make a little plot of the energy levels versus b, get some straight lines. State with nz equal to 1, nothing happens to it. Psi B goes down and Psi A goes up. <coughs> so it works exactly like we would think because of our vast experience with the perturbation theory. We have three degenerate levels. We put in some random thing that messes around with them. They don't have the same energy levels anymore because of this, because we tickled them or poke them or kick them or something. So they split into three different guys. And once we know the good states, then uh, life is simple. Hmm. So I have the uh, the second excited state but we only have two minutes. So I'm just going to write it in the notes. And you guys can read it if you feel inclined.
That's not, or how many people want me to do it in class next time? This the six by six matrix. I think we're good. Okay. So I'll, I'll put it in the I'll put it in the notes. People who care, people who love quantum mechanics, <coughs> can read the notes. Pardon me. Yeah. So the important point is it divides into three blocks because there's an nz equal to zero, nz equal to one, and nz equal to two. So there's a three by three, a two by two, and a one by one. So you just have to diagonalize those submatrices again. So you can do a six by six in, in these simple cases. Okay. See you on Wednesday.